You're listening to the first episode of the new CEU Medieval Radio Lecture Series. We start with a lecture by Professor Natalie Zeman Davis at CEU entitled Decentering History Local Stories and Cultural Crossings in a Global World. Professor Emma Rita of Princeton University and currently Adjunct Professor of History and Medieval Studies at the University of Toronto. Professor Davis was awarded in 2012 the National Humanities Medal. The citation read, for her insights into the study of history and her exacting eloquence in bringing the past into focus. With vivid description and exhaustive research, her works allow us to experience life through our ancestors' eyes and to engage truly with our history. Her lecture, Decentering History, examines the two emerging themes of post-war historical writing, the incorporation of often neglected groups such as women and working people, and the move beyond a narrow focus on Western Europe. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Gabor. I really do feel as though I'm coming home when I come to the uh, Central European University to uh, see old friends, to make new friends, uh, to meet with the students, which has been very exciting, and then to have the great pleasure of hearing the NZD lecture. Uh, uh, this year's William Christian has just been just extraordinary. I mean, I've been a fan of his for a long time. This is really very, very special. Uh, so I... Uh, and I also should say that the only reasons I didn't come before when I missed years was not just indifferences, I was having hip replacement operations. I was in bed. <laughs> I thought uh, uh, this lecture, uh, part of it is historiographical review, both general and, and in reference to my own life. And I thought that might be interesting to, especially to the young people, the students here, to uh, see what some of us went through in, some of, in, in the changes that led up to uh, global history. And secondly, I thought some of you, and I know from my meeting, our meeting with the students yesterday that this should be relevant, some of you may wonder, as I have, how one can do not just history that crosses boundaries, but the new global history without only having to do great grand schemes, big stories, but how one can sustain uh, what I'm calling here local storytelling uh, and crossings and still have a kind of global consciousness. So that's uh, my agenda. In 1403, in Cairo, the judge Ibn Khaldun made the final corrections to his Muqaddimah, the introduction to his Book of Examples, that great study in Arabic uh, of the character and history of all civilizations. Two years later in Paris, the poet Christine de Pizan put the final touches on her Book of the City of Ladies, that innovating defense in French of the qualities and wide-ranging accomplishments of women, past and present. Contemporaries, though these two writers were, and universal in application, though they both claimed their arguments to be, their manuscripts had rather little overlap in personnel or events, other than figures like Aristotle. Christine's illustrious women had mostly lived within the bounds of Europe, and those women who had not, such as the 4th century martyr, St. Catherine of Alexandria, lived long before Islam had taken root in Syria and North Africa. Ibn Khaldun did praise the shrewd policies of the 11th century Berber queen Zainab and did approve the skills of midwives, but women were not singled out for discussion in the Muqaddimah, neither for celebration, description, nor vituperation. Though a reader of political philosophy, Christine de Pizan would not have heard of Ibn Khaldun. A few of the medical and philosophical writings of Ibn Sina, or Avicenna as he was called in Europe, and Ibn Rushd, that is, Averroes, had been translated from the Arabic into Latin in medieval times. But Ibn Khaldun's name appeared in Latin in medieval, uh, 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 excuse me, but Ibn Khaldun's name appeared in a European publication only in the mid-16th century, and his writings in a European tongue only in the 19th century. 
And Ibn Khaldun, though a lover of poetry and aware, as he wrote, that the philosophical sciences were flourishing north of the Mediterranean, would not have heard of Christine de Pizan, and could, indeed could not have heard of her, for he died not long after her first works had been penned and copied. Her writings have, as far as I know, never been translated into Arabic, though I'm sure the City of Ladies is being read in English uh, today in courses at the American University of Cairo. Well, what's such a gap between their references, their circles, and their readers, why then do I juxtapose those, juxtapose those two figures? Aren't they just worlds apart? My answer to that question is connected with the seemingly contradictory pull in the themes of my title, history decentered, but yet held together in a globalized world. Decentering involves the stances and the subject matter of the historian. Here the historian does not tell the story of the past only from the vantage point of a single part of the world or of powerful elites, but rather widens his or her scope socially and geographically and introduces plural voices into the account. There are many antecedents to this expansion, but let us here just follow it in waves after World War II. The first social wave involved writing history where the main actors were the working people or lower classes, slaves, serfs, peasants, artisans, tradesmen and industrial workers, and more. The menu peuple, the little people, as they were called in France, and as I named them in the 1950s when I started my doctoral dissertation. The exploited or oppressed classes in Marxist terms, the subaltern classes, as they were called by the school of social historians in India in the 1980s. The second social wave, starting in the 1960s, brought women and gender to the fore. And once women are a full part of the historical narrative, rigid notions of central power structures are undermined further by the study of households, families, and sexualities, all arenas where the relation between intimacy and domination is especially unsettling. Even female rulers had a paradoxical relation to power. The geographical wave into centering history grew out of questions that erupted in the study of working people and women, along with the challenges posed by the independence and post-colonial movements of the late 20th century. Scholars of slavery in the Americas insisted on the importance of racism and slave experience and the relevance of Africa to slave practices and beliefs. Scholars of Jewish and other immigrant groups in the United, in the United States insisted on the distinctive experience of these groups. European feminist movements had different trajectories from those in North America. It was pointed out by European scholars, one of whom, where is she? Francisca Dahan did so at an international meeting uh, uh, when we Americans came over, we Canadians and Americans came over, and the Dutch and other Europeans said, the historical narrative that you're giving does not fit with our experience, say, in the Netherlands. So, uh, and don't we need to speak of varieties of early feminism, even in the late 18th century in Europe itself? Meanwhile, post-colonial scholars were turning the history of expansion and empire upside down. It was not enough to describe the policies of the conquering or imperial nations, the actions of their governors, soldiers, settlers, and missionaries, their treatment of and attitudes toward conquered or colonized peoples. The peoples themselves had to be given voice and agency, reacting to Europeans, suffering, resisting, exchanging knowledge and objects, sometimes intimate with Europeans, often ignoring them and going on with their lives. Efforts were also made to elucidate a history for peoples said to have no memory, uh, of, uh, of no memory of a history, as in Bruce Triggers, and here's just so you'll be able to see what this book is. Bruce Trigger's use of archaeological evidence and folk tales to recount the history of the Iroquoian-speaking Wendat peoples of the St. Lawrence Basin and 
Richard Price's interviews with the keepers of the historical past among the Saramaca Maroons, that is, the slaves who had run away to the jungle and lived freely there, the Maroons of the Suriname rainforest. Two warnings have been issued loud and clear about this historical enterprise. One was uttered in 1983 by Johannes Pamian. In describing encounters with non-European cultures, he said, Western anthropologists and historians must not view them simply as an earlier version of their own society, stuck in some prior historical stage. Rather, for instance, the Ursuline sisters and the Wendat women farmers who met in the convent churchyard in Quebec, in Quebec, in the 17th century, should be seen as, and I quote his formulation, absolutely simultaneous, radically contemporaneous. A second admonition has come from Deepesh Chakrabarti uh, in his 2000 book, Provincializing Europe, and it's addressed to his fellow historians in India as well as to Western ones. Historical thought, he said, had taken Europe's pattern as the exclusive model for modernization, and other parts of the world were always being de described in terms of catch-up or not yet there. But he insisted the West, the West represented only one path to the present. A further geographical wave effacing fixed center points has been the new world or global history. Here too, there are antecedents going back to the 17th century, but the current form forms respond to events of the late 20th and early 21st century, the end of the Cold War, the spread of multinational capitalism, the reconfiguration of the international political and religious landscape, and the new technology of communication, the threats to climate, species, and resources. All of these have been part of this. The publications in world history that have appeared are geographically inclusive, stress the history of great units over time, such as political empires or trade networks or diasporas, and large encounters of peoples and cultural forms. Comparisons are made across extended geographical space, say, in patterns of consumption or prophetic movements and others. Animals and plants, taken seriously as, as historical actors, share the narrative with human beings. Recently, I went to a, a conference and heard a paper on uh, plants, the stories of plants. <laughs> plants were given agency as historical actors. And yet, despite its commitment to multiple modernities, questions have been raised about the new global history, including by some of its practitioners, about whether its historical agenda and categories are still just Western and Euro Eurocentric, about whether the sharp edges of social history and gender history are being ignored, or at least eroded, in the descriptions of large scale interactions among civilizations, trading empires, and species. Is global history then the only form suitable for recounting the past in a globalized world? Well, I want to now do uh, briefly a little local storytelling about my own movement toward decentering, so as to illustrate why one could choose more concrete forms. I first read Christine de Pizan's City of Ladies in 1951, when I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan. Her works were suggested to me by a professor, a man, uh, in fact I didn't have any but male professors, in an innovative seminar, <laughs> uh, but, it's, it, but this was suggested by a man, in an innovative seminar on the social and gender roles in that great Renaissance text, The Courtier, by Baldassar Castiglione. Until that time, I had never heard of Christine de Pisan. Indeed, I had never read a text written by a late medieval or early modern woman during all my previous studies at Smith College or Harvard. Christine de Pizan's defense of the capacities of women in all realms of human experience filled me with astonishment and delight. Learning of her literary strategies, I wrote an essay on Christine de Pizan as a prototype of the professional literary woman. Let's see, what have I got here? I'm, a, I'm one ahead. 
there we are. I just thought the students would be interested. This was my graduate student paper type on a typewriter. <laughs> but I didn't want to choose her for my doctoral dissertation. Uh, Christine was loyal, to, close, close to royal courts. She wasn't decentered enough for me. I wanted to change the perspective on the Protestant Reformation by seeing it through the eyes, not of the usual theologians and prince, princes of the center, but of artisans, and specifically the printing workers of Lyon with their strikes, psalm singing, street marches, and pride in printing the Bible. At about the same time, I read a newly published book of excerpts from Ibn Khaldun's Muqaddimah, translated from the Arabic by Charles Isawi, then a professor at Beirut. And I, from his introduction, it looks as though this is the first English translation. There are French translations already in the 19th century. Uh, and Isawi was then, some, some, I'm sure you know his, his writings, was then a young, young starting his career at Beirut. He later was my colleague at uh, Princeton. I may have bought the book at the time because I had heard that Ibn Khaldun anticipated Karl Marx's labor theory of value and that the Mukadima had won the praise of Friedrich Engels. It's probably why I bought it. Anyway, I was enthralled by how Ibn Khaldun wove together geography, economic society, and the state, and by his analysis of forms of social organization and knowledge. But I would never have thought at that time of plunging into a study of Ibn Khaldun's world. Rather, I categorized him together with Giambattista Vico, Karl Marx, and Max Weber as important thinkers associated in my mind as they might be in the pages of the Journal of the History of Ideas, which I was then reading as avidly. Only 20 years later did I see the study of women as a second site from which I could do history. By then I had written about printers and other artisans, reckon masters, the urban poor, and welfare reformers. Women had had brief appearances in these studies, but had not been central to the analysis. But by 1970, I had been active in the feminist movement at the University of Toronto and had got to know Jill Kerr Conway, a pioneer in the study of the first generation of American women with doctorates. I now began to see how gender position could be as important to consider as social position and understanding, say, 16th century French structures of power and religious change. And other scholars of my generation, such as Michel Perrault, or the slightly and younger than I, Joan Scott, have made a similar trajectory, adding the study of women to the study, uh, or their earlier study of workers. I know that much of what I'm saying now is very familiar to those of you uh, working on gender studies or taking co these courses some of you are doing dissertations where you see this now, but I wanted to evoke for you what it was like when you didn't, you didn't have these ways of looking at things. From 1971 on, I taught a course on society and the sexes with Christine de Pizan's City of Ladies, the opening text. Women were now centrally part of my historical work, whether in the person of the wife of Martin Gare, or in sorting out the appeal of Protestant Reformation to urban women, or the gender element in symbolic festivities and popular uprisings. Moreover, the female case was especially important in urging me toward another, another decentering, the refusal to privilege a single path or geographical location as the model for assessing historical change. For me, the move toward what Shmuel Eisenstadt already in 1968 saw as multiple modernities, and I think Eisenstadt has come and lectured here, yes. and so I'm sure maybe you've heard him. Well, in 1968, he was already talking about multiple modernities. For him, it, uh, it came through comparing European religion with Japanese. But for me, it came in making comparisons within European, Europe itself, especially women. As I considered the relation of women to the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Reformation, I saw possibilities and limitations on both sides. Say, stress on literacy for the one, female collective organization in the other. Persistence of some form of hierarchy with both of them. Calvinism and Catholicism had differing ways of defining sacred space and sacred time, but each connected with the economic activities and rhythms of an urban, developing urban city like Lyon. The differences between the religions were important, were better understood as alternate and sometimes equivalent paths, paths to modernity. 
And it was in this spirit that I decided in the early 1990s to write Women on the Margins, the book that um, Gabor mentioned. Itself a reflection on the creative possibilities of lives let outside of centers of authority and high learning. Through this German Jewish merchant woman Glickel, the French Catholic missionary Marie de l'Incarnation, and the German Dutch Protestant uh, entomologist artist Maria Sibylla Marian, I wanted to portray three versions of 17th century life for urban women in Europe. There are differences to be linked to religious sensibility or occupational practices, but not to one or the other of them being backward or deprived of cultural resources. It was the same kind of enterprise uh, as uh, I wanted in a, in a sense, I guess, to say to provincialize Maria Sibylla Marion, who would be the characteristic modern form, and simply make her one of three interesting possibilities of life for women. It was also thanks to these women, especially Marie de l'Incarnation and Maria Sibylla Marion, that I finally made a decentering move outside of Europe. As I wrote of the Amerindian women, whom Marie de l'Incarnation tried to convert to Christianity in Quebec, and the Carib and Arab African slave women, who served as Maria Sibylla Marion's assistants in her entomological studies in Suriname, and here they are. These were these. The time that I was working on this, I, I would see these women. This is a, I hope you can see this a little bit. Longhouse uh, Iroquoian women. Um, let's see, do I have any of this? Yeah, this is, uh, maybe it was it. Uh, women doing agriculture, these longhouse women. And if you, this is very hard to see, I think, here, but these were the slave men and women uh, from Suriname. And it was when I was doing this work on, on Marianne Marie and looking at these pictures and I thought, <laughs> I wanted to give some voice to the non-European women and that they must not be merely instruments in the accomplishments of European women. I did what I could, but it was just a start. And the experience of writing Women on the Margins changed my sense of myself as a historian. I was no longer going to think of myself as a Europeanist. But would, be, but would be a historian who would change her sights. And when I wrote from Europe, or from anywhere, this is what I hoped, I would always try to run my story, if only as a mental exercise, through the eyes of those elsewhere in the world. The first place I turned in this new endeavor was North Africa, uh, which had been the home of Ibn Khaldun. I decided to write a book about the 16th century figure whom Europeans called Leo Africanus, this trickster that Gaber mentioned, and restore him as the uh, Arabic-speaking Muslim, Hassan al-Wazan. Here's his, uh, you'll see in the bottom line there, his only example that we have of his writing in, uh, where you see Johannes Leo Servus Medicis, uh, of his writing in, um, in uh, Latin. In, in a European script, and restore him as the Arabic-speaking Muslim Hassan al-Wazan, who lived as a seeming Christian for a time in Italy. A devoted reader of Ibn Khaldun's manuscripts, al-Wazan was the first to make his name known to European readers. And, I don't know if, there he is, Ibn Khaldun, first time his name. Uh, uh, this is not his handwriting, but this is a, the manuscript made word for word from his own uh, manuscript in 1526. I circle back now to my query about forms of writing history in a globalized world. I want to offer to you now two different examples of focused concrete cases that I hope can expand, that I think are the kind that can expand history's borders. The first is the direct comparison of Ibn Khaldun and Christine de Prisan, whom I had put in separate boxes for so many years. Ibn Khaldun and Christine de Bizan provide alternate versions of life as a person of letters on two sides of the Mediterranean in the late 14th and early 15th centuries, with differences due especially to gender and to literary and philosophical traditions. Both were born to learned fathers, Ibn Khaldun in Tunis, and since I don't 
don't have a, uh, there's no picture of him. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, Renaissance uh, imaginings, late medieval and Renaissance imaginings of him in, in European manuscripts. But I just thought I would put up the statue of him in his, uh, they're very, very proud, and rightly so, from his uh, native Tunis. Christine in Venice. Both moved from their places of birth, Christine as a girl to Paris, where her father became astrologer physician to the King of France, Ibn Khaldun as a young man to Fez, where he became chancellor to the Marinid Sultan. Their paths to learning differed, Ibn Khaldun relishing studies with the professors at the schools of Tunis, Christine being instructed by her father under her mother's disapproving eye, and then as a young widow, plunging by herself into French, Italian, and Latin classical letters. Both were associated with royal courts. Ibn Khaldun was secretary, advisor, diplomat, or jurist to sultanic courts in Fez, Granada, and Cairo. Christine was the wife of a royal notary, then a widowed literary figure at the courts of France and Burgundy, on one occasion being given a commission to write the life of the late King Charles V. And this is, this is actually Christine with her son. Um, with such contrasting roles, Christine de Pizan and Ibn Khaldun wrote at a different pace. Christine composed steadily over a period of about 25 years, poetry and then prose, a conduct book for women, treatises on military conduct and on peace, literary criticism, history, autobiography, and more. Ibn Khaldun pr produced some early works on theology, logic, and arithmetic, and a later book, quite important one, on Sufism, along with his sustained diplomatic correspondence in rhymed prose, and also books of occasional poems. But he compressed the composition of most of the Book of Examples, of which the Mukaddimah was the introduction, into three years of retreat from political activity when he was in his 40s, and then revised and finished this voluminous manuscript script over the next 24 years. He packed much of his learning, this was really a little bit di different from Christine's style, into this one great book, his reflections on all aspects of civilizations, his universal history, his history of the Berbers, and his autobiography. Producing books in the busy networks of scribal culture, Christine de Pizan and Ibn Khaldun thought much about audience and patronage. For Christine, these were critical matters, for without a large inheritance and without an office in church or government, she was dependent on patronage to support herself and her children. Her intended readers were men and women of the royal courts and learned clerics, but as a female writer and with a daring message in the city of ladies, her status as author was precarious. If the Chancellor of the University of Paris acclaimed her as a distinguished woman, a manly female, her opponents in a literary quarrel ridiculed her female foolishness. Thus Christine was very attentive to the beauty of her manuscripts, setting up an all-female workshops for copying and illuminating them, and then sending the books to kings, countesses, dukes, and duchesses with flattering dedications. Some of the recipients would find themselves named in a chapter of the City of Ladies on the virtuous women of France. So instead of looking at the index to see if they were there, they'd look in this chapter, the recipients would look in this chapter, there were their names. So here are two examples. I'm, some of you I know know this, but just look at, enjoy it again, and for those of you who don't, um, from this uh, beautiful, beautifully illustrated uh, this is manuscript from her own workshop. Christine with some of the virtuous ladies. Well, actually, Christine with three of the dream women to whom who are set this book on. Ibn Khaldun also addressed readers among the sultans and their entourage, as well as among learned scholars and students who flocked to his lectures. Though he mentioned his wife in his autobiography, there's no clear sign that he imagined her or other women among his readers. He had some critics in his own day, men jealous of his reputation and traditionalists opposed to what he called a new science. But no one challenged Ibn Khaldun's right to publish, in contrast with, with Christine. Still, Ibn Khaldun used some caution. While breaking with the chains of transmitted wisdom so important in Islamic methods of proof, 
I have invented a remarkable path, he wrote, an original approach. He still eulogized all his teachers and invited other scholars to correct his errors. He also cared deeply, as had centuries of Arab writers, about the accuracy of his manuscript. There exists no copy to this, uh, no copy superior to this one, he wrote on the manuscript one scribe had made of his Mukadimon. And that's with the square there. That's his signature and his affirmation about this text. And the approval of rulers was important enough for him to dedicate manuscripts to sultans at Tunis, Fez, and Cairo. And this is the famous world map that goes back to Al-Adrisi of a few centuries before, but that appeared in, in, in color, unfortunately. I don't have it here in color, uh, in this manuscript. Um, in case you're wondering, uh, south is up. <laughs> That's the Nile over there on the right, uh, meeting the Niger, but never mind <laughs> uh, about the geography. That's, but that is a famous thing that he added to the, the manuscript. Taking a single moment and two innovative lives on either side of the Mediterranean, I have tried to expand the geographical and cultural frame in which historians usually reflect on the production of knowledge, privileging neither the European Christian nor the North African Muslim, setting and presenting the women's experience as alternative to, alternative to rather than lagging behind the man's. If anything, Christine's scribal adventures were more inventive. A second way to enhance the historian's global consciousness while sustaining his or her love of the concrete story is to focus on cases of cultural crossing. For this inquiry, let's leave the late medieval Mediterranean and its world of learning for the Atlantic and the Caribbean and the 18th century world of slavery, the subject as Gabor mentioned of my own current research. I want to follow with you African practices of divination detection and healing as they crossed the Atlantic Ocean and were used or transformed in the mixed communities of slaves in the Americas, especially in the Dutch colony of Suriname. Our first sources here, with the history students yesterday, we talked about sources, and Bill and I said, where are your sources? Well, here are, my, here are some of my sources. Our first sources here are the recollections, recollections of slaves and ex-slaves themselves, such as Olado Equiano, uh, and uh, this is a very famous text, and also published accounts by European observers of Africa, Willem Bozeman, longtime agent for the Dutch West India Company, and Ludwig Ferdinand Romer, factor for the Danish West India and Guinea Company, uh, and then the slaver ship captain, William Snellgrave, John Atkins, who was surgeon on a slave ship, and others, all of them writing about what they had observed, uh, or in Alulado's case, what he had lived in Africa. Along the whole range of the Guinea coast and inland kingdoms of Africa, the gods were always drawn upon for divination, detection, and healing. Not the high god, who ruled more distantly overall, but one of the pantheon of responsive lesser gods, the Vudun, the Orisha, the different names, the, uh, uh, who ruled realms of the sea or the air, or who were embodied in a special kind of tree or snake, or were more intimately connected to an ancestral spirit. The diviner's rod encapsulated the god's presence, a wooden rod filled with earth, oil, bones, feathers, hair, and other objects which are imbued with a divine aura. Consulting a healer about an illness or a wound, the supplicant discovered what the god wanted in order to bring a cure, a sheep, a hog, gold, or cloth, and then left that as gifts. At the same time, the healer dispensed medicaments, appropriate juices, herbs, gums, roots, and bark. William Bozeman, the Dutch... Uh, uh, Representative of the Dutch West India Company, of the Dutch uh, uh, West Africa Company, I quote him about this: "The green herbs, the principal remedy in use among the Negroes, among the Africans, are of such wonderful efficacy that 'tis much to be deplored that no European physician has yet applied himself to the discovery of their nature and virtue." 
Diviners were called upon at the early, earliest stage of crime detection, including when the victim or the victim's family was unsure of who had been the perpetrator. When poisoning was expected, suspected in a death, the diviner asked the corpse at the funeral if there had been foul play. If the answer were yes, the dead spirit impelled the four men bearing the corpse to lower it. Uh, and sometimes forced the men, the bearers, to run to the house of the poisoner. The innocence or guilt of those accused of a crime, theft, murder, adultery, poison, kidnapping, or witchcraft, was then established by a diviner's test. Three major tests were used, widespread along the Guinea coast in various forms. Before the god, Present through the diviner's rod, the accused drank a special drink and was smeared by the diviner with a powerful ointment. The accused then called on the god for death if he or she were guilty. Now the diviner came to the ceremony after making a preliminary inquiry about the crime. And you can see what leeway he or she had in, in, in preparing the drink and the ointment, depending on what he thought, the community thought, other, uh, about this. The, and another test, the accused had to place his or her, if I, if I missed that, okay, I must have accepted. In another test, the accused had to place his or her arm in the diviner's great pot of boiling water. And this is uh, an illustration of that made by a, a 17th century Italian missionary to the Congo region. Um, place his or her arm in the diviner's great pot of boiling water to retrieve a rock or a cowrie shell. If the accused were guilty, the arm would become, in the next days, ulcerated. In a third test, the diviner passed a cock's quill through the, through the tongue of the accused. Easy removal revealed innocence. Here again, we can see the leeway allowed the diviner in the choice of a heavy or light object for the water, or the temperature for the water, or in the size or manipulation of the cock's quill. Once guilt was thus established, the person was given a sentence by the king and his council of great men, or by a regional governor or local headmen and his advisors. The death penalty was possible in cases of murder and a heinous crime like witchcraft, but was by no means regularly pronounced. Fines the restoration of stolen goods or persons, and compensatory payments were the more frequent penalties. And when these were not suitably forthcoming, the preferred penalty in the course of the 18th century was selling the guilty person to a European slaver to be transported to the Americas. Such are the memories that Africans brought with them uh, to their lives as slaves. And African-born slaves still made up the majority of those in the Caribbean plantations of the 18th century. These survivors from the Atlantic crossing entered societies with highly punitive discipline from their white masters and with cultural contrasts likely with Europeans and with Africans from other language and ethnic groups. Contrasts in the names of the gods, in rules for marriage, and much more. Communication was made possible in Suriname by the creation of a Creole language, mostly the work of the slaves themselves, referred to in Suriname as uh, Neger English, Black English um, uh, at the time, and today called by the linguist Sranen, with, English, with an English and African vocabulary and an African substrate. Known to Suriname owners and uh, overseers just sufficiently to give orders that language, Sranen expanded in the mouths of slaves and their children to be the language in which many features of their lives, including divining, detecting, and healing, were carried on. Healers surface on all the Suriname plantations, and diviners, known as Lukuman, that is Lukman, <laughs> or Granman, or Granmanma, emerge on those of any size. Some were born in Africa. Others, especially in the late, later 18th century, were born in Suriname. 
These men and women did not have the realm of curing all to themselves, as did their male and female counterparts in Africa. Every plantation had its medical cabinet with surgical instruments and sometimes a physician, a European physician, born physician, or European, was summoned to see a slave. But on the whole, slave healers were allowed to flourish with a mixed response from the settler physicians, as you'll see in a moment, but still without the controls exercised by the medical profession in Europe against, in Europe, so-called empirics and quacks. Indeed, the slave healer midwife is listed on the plantation inventory. She flourishes there rather than being suppressed. The pharmacopoeia of the Suriname healers the pharmacopoeia of the Suriname healers was carried over from Africa when possible and was also enriched by exchange with the indigenous Caribs and, and Arawaks and by discoveries the healers made in the local flora. Their treatments were always accompanied by appeal to the gods and a patient's death might be blamed, as in Africa, on a hostile poisoner. The Scottish soldier, John Gabriel Stedman, in Suriname on a military mission, had nothing but praise for the spiced drink given him by a woman healer, which saved him from a high fever after the draught prescribed by an army surgeon had almost killed him. And Stedman did not mind when the woman thanked her God in her own fashion. In contrast, the learned Jewish physician David Nasi, descendant of one of the first settler families in Suriname, ridiculed the divinations employed by black healers to, to, to diagnose uh, uh, their illnesses and their indiscriminate use of certain kinds of herbs and spices. But still, Nasi affirmed that there were blacks who had remarkable knowledge of the medicinal plants of Suriname and made cures that had astonished physicians. One such was the celebrated Lucaman Kwasi, revered as a seer and a healer by blacks throughout Suriname and discoverer of a bark that would bring down high fever. And a specimen of this bark was sent by a Swedish planter in Suriname back to Carl Linnaeus, who then named it Linguam Kwasi after this slave. And this is a picture of Kwasi made by John Gabriel Stedman. Uh, it is uh, after he returned from his first trip to the Netherlands, uh, during which he assisted the uh, creation by the estate general, didn't create, didn't do it himself, but assisted uh, of a law that said that uh, if slaves were brought from Suriname or any of the Dutch colonies to the Netherlands, uh, after six months they were free. No more. They couldn't be kept on as slaves. This, he was then given all kinds of European garb. This is a somewhat satirical picture. I have two minds about showing. Somewhat uh, ambivalent picture by Stedman, who tells the story of Kwasi's discovery, uh, but uh, somewhat mocks him. But still, there he is. There's the man I'm talking about uh, come to life for a moment in this picture. Another such was Guanman Sawade, who had a cure for neonate neonatal tetanus, an affliction affecting many black infants in Suriname. Try as he could, the, the physician David Nasi could never extract Sawadi's secret for the cure. Meanwhile, a European physician spending several years in Suriname was permitted by a black woman healer to observe her successful cure of an adult with tetanus. She began with scarification and leeches, then continued with repeated hot compresses of oil, water and oil infused with local plants. Now, those leeches may have been a remedy adopted by this black woman from white medicine, for they are not mentioned in descriptions of Guinea Coast healing from the time. So we have a mixture here of the African style and the, the Dutch European style. The transmission and transformation of practices of criminal detection were more difficult to achieve than those in healing, because in principle, all wrongdoing by slaves was to be investigated investigated, judged, and punished either by their owners and overseers on the plantation or by the colonial courts. Yet the slaves managed to establish a criminal justice of their own. The diviners were central to this process, and along with them, slave figures of prestige and authority on the plantation. The black driver, 
the Nangrabasya, uh, as he's called in Sranen, and other leading men and women. The black driver was usually born in Suriname, and though named, perhaps, most often named by the overseer, he had to have the strong support of other slaves if he were to have any effect. He had to combine the political skills of an African headman, learned from his father or from the African-born slaves on the plantation, with the savvy of a native about what was necessary to tell the white bosses. As one white driver, one white driver put it, because there was a white driver over the black drivers, to his fellow officers in Suriname, never trust a black driver, for his solidarity lies not with the plantation staff, but with the other slaves. And here is a, in this painting again, and I'm not sure you can see it, but this is a, a witty dance. This is a popular dance uh, where the, 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 some of the figures are possessed by their god. And this figure here is a large figure that perhaps some of you can see. That's the black. This is the black driver. Uh, well, hey, can you sort of see? You can, anyway, there's this large figure here who is standing aloof uh, uh, and watching. He's, he's actually got uh, a knife in his. Uh, he's the only one that's armed. Uh, and, and this is the figure. Uh, I'm. This is the figure that I'm talking about. Both participating in, but standing somewhat uh, aside. So it's him, uh, and and uh, together with the other prestigious uh, uh, figures on the plantation. And who are they? They are the skilled craftsmen, the slave carpenters and coopers, and the female cooks, knitters, and seamstresses. Whether born in Africa or Suriname, they all had channels to the white bosses, especially the women. And the women are very important. More, this is a, um, together with the diviners, these men and women arbitrated disputes and established slave justice. As I read the evidence, a slave community with any coherence preferred to deal first with their own offenders before deciding whether or not to yield them up to the white masters or to the courts. An essential means to this end was the control of information to the white overseer and the master and the mistress who lived apart from the slaves. These, this is, you saw there the slave quarters and there's quite a distance away from the big houses. Who lived apart from the slaves and who had limited knowledge of Sranen. When accusations were made of bad-mouthing, theft, or physical harm, especially poisoning, the practices of detection began. In case of a death where poison was suspected, the Af African corpse-carrying test, which you heard about, was a possibility for finding the evildoer. It is definitely reported on certain Danish and English plantations and may have taken place in Suriname. I just haven't yet found a, a precise evidence for it. At least two procedures of detection in Suriname were variants of those you've heard about in Africa. In the Kangra, the, the Sranan term, the tongue of the accused was smeared with a potion from a special herb, then a chicken quill was passed through it. If it went through the tongue easily, the person was innocent, if not guilty. Me sada you Kangra, I want to make the Kangra test with you, was how the accusation began. Plunging the arm of the accused in the diviner's hot water pot was another form of proof. And this is the only picture that I have from Suriname of a woman healer. Uh, she's not doing that particular test, the one you saw, but you see the big pot. Uh, this is another test going on here. Uh, so there she is from Suriname. The diviners always sought information ahead of time about the persons and accusations and, and as in Africa. This guided decisions about the kind of uh, herb potion, the size of the object in the pot, and the temperature of the water. Judgment, so I suggest, was then made by the black driver with other leading men or women. Uh, a replication of the council of headmen with his counselors in the Guinea coast, though here with a much more enhanced role for women. The women were not part of these judging courts in Africa, but they are part of the important uh, decision makers on the, on the plantations. In cases of theft, the punishment was more likely not to be strokes of the whip, as the master would have done, but some form of compensation that is the African practice adjusted to Suriname, produce from one slave 
Eve garden or a garment or a bracelet or tobacco. Poisoning was much more serious. In Africa, as we've seen, it was punishable by death or by being sold into slavery. In Suriname, the courts punished it by the death sentence. In such an instance, slaves might well then, finding the poisoner, yield him or her up, the uncontrollable poisoner, to the white authorities for punishment. Is there any sign that slave justice adopted procedures in use uh, in the Suriname courts? Torture to obtain confession was completely foreign to African practice. That is the standard thing that in the Suriname courts for criminal cases. And when Suriname courts tortured slaves, they rarely broke. As for testimony, slaves were sometimes interrogated in a case involving a free person, but that testimony, because they were slaves, was never admissible in a court. Never. The slaves had little to pick up from old regime criminal justice. Better just to stick with the Congre. I hope that this extending of the City of Scholars to include both Christine de Pizan and Ibn Khaldun within its walls, and that following the destiny of medicinal plants and cox quills as they crossed the Atlantic and were reused in Suriname, can show us something new about literary lives and making books, about slavery, healing, and criminal justice, and about ways of doing history. In 1760, in introducing Ludwig Ferdinand Romer's book about the slave trade on the Guinea coast, the Bishop of Bergen commented, one of the advantages of latter day times is that the inhabitants of the world have come to know one another better than they did formerly. It's hard to believe that many of the Africans being snatched away from their families to make the middle passage to the Americas found that contact much of an advantage. Maybe some of them did, probably not most of them. Expansions in our globe, then and now, can bring terrible violence and domination. But they can also open the possibility of more equitable forms of exchange and mutual knowledge. Indeed, the direct exchange among scholars across boundaries is one of the best paths to discoveries in our globalized latter-day times. So I witnessed at a recent gathering of scholars and writers from Africa, Europe, and North Africa, where we all talked together and compared tales of slavery. And so one learns that a younger generation of historians of Turkish and Armenian origin are working together to study the mass murders and ethnic cleansing of Armenians in 1915, replacing, as one of them has said, the two opposing nationalist narratives by a single shared account based on evidence and reflecting on unsettled questions of definition. So might we do in our own regions? So might we think of new ways of traversing borders and abrading the history of the diverse peoples in our lands, new, new ways to hold on to our local stories while still being open to cultural crossings which can bring us creative change. Thank you for listening to CEU's Medieval Radio Lecture Series. Please visit our website at medievalradio.org, send us an email at medievalradio at and like us on Facebook.